All right, I'm going to read you Psalm 127. This is a song of ascents of Solomon. Um, you know what? This is the first sermon we ever did in this building. It was titled the first, uh, first words of this psalm, Unless the Lord Builds the House. When we uh, moved into the building, I did a sermon based on those words. So Psalm 127, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Okay, while we're getting started, I'm going to uh, read you something that came in the mail today, okay? And uh, it was sitting in the door when we got here, and uh, it, it's a person that this is her church. And just like we were talking about the uh, people in England who, this is their church, well, here you go. Um, she sent a card, remember the Lord is with you, and he will surely hold you up and strengthen you. Uh, with love to you, your family, and the entire congregation, online and physical, Jillian Mullen, Okay. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and read her letter. I hope she doesn't mind that I read this, but it's just so touching that... Uh, Hi, Pastor Charlie. As I was uh, starting to listen to the 100th Genesis sermon this morning, I really wanted to write, uh, write you to let you know that you have helped me so much in understanding. I had read the Bible through three or four times, and I never was able to get any understanding until I started listening to your sermons. I think it's just God's perfect timing that it's now right uh, from uh, it's now right for me to start to learn. I don't have a church to go to except for yours. I'm a recovering Catholic, as quite a few people in here uh, would say, and actually reading the Bible is something that was never done for years and years. The Catholic traditions that used to be comforting and comfortable have become unpalatable. I actually haven't been to any church in person at all for at least 15 years. But I do love Jesus, and I know what he did for me personally. My online name is, and I'm not going to give it because I don't want, it, maybe there's a reason why she didn't give both. But I will say that uh, in parenthesis, she says, that is the name I've always used. She was my first horse, okay? But my real name is Jillian. Thank you for sharing your journey and letting me be a part of it. I'm sorry that I wasn't really there from the beginning, but I feel like I have been as I've watched through the through Genesis, the journey through Genesis. Thank you so much for everything. So that is to all of you. That's not just a letter to me. She, she wrote it to all of you, and uh, this is her church and her home, and I, I, she will never know what that letter means to me, especially coming in here first thing Saturday morning and uh, seeing that and knowing that she's out there and she considers us a member of her congregation. I, I just have to thank the Lord for that. Um, our uh, sermon text today is uh, Exodus 25. It's verses 23 through 30. Okay, this is entitled A Table in the Presence of the Lord. Uh, verse 23, you shall also make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around. You shall make it for it a frame of a handbreadth all around. And you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and put the rings on the four corners that are at its four legs. The rings shall be close to the frame as holders to the, for the poles to bear the table. 
and you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold that the table may be carried with them. You shall make its dish, uh, make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold and you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. All right. I, that was verse 30. That's our last verse. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, so, I had to make a choice on Monday, the 1st of February. When I first got up, I thought, there is a lot of verses left in chapter 25. 18, in fact. But the instruction for the table of showbread are only eight verses. As you saw, I just almost skipped over them. And parts of them are very, very similar to parts of the details for the Ark of the Covenant. So I started compiling a sermon which would include the entire 18 verses to finish off the chapter. I didn't really want to do that because the details for the menorah are so exciting and precise. And when we get there, I know you'll agree with that. I had figured I'd have to cut those short and not do a full evaluation of that most precious item. However, after a few hours of studying and typing, I realized that I could get a full sermon out of just the verses concerning the table of the showbread. There is repetition with the construction of the ark, yes, and I'm not one that likes to repeat things. However, the Lord repeated these details for a good reason, and who am I to ignore repeating the meaning of them? And so, some of this sermon will repeat those details of what we saw concerning the ark, except that they are modified for the construction of the table. Maybe you'll get distracted today at a different point in the sermon than you got distracted during the sermon on the ark. If so, then you might hear something new that you missed before. And there is plenty of completely new detail in this passage as well. So sit back, relax, and please enjoy what the Lord has tucked away for us. Our text first today comes from Psalm 91, it's verses 1 and 2. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him I will trust. What is it like to be in the presence of the Lord? Adam and Eve were in his presence, but they lost that right. The naming of the two boys, Cain and Abel, as we saw during our Resurrection Day sermon, tell us a great deal about how Eve felt. She desperately wanted to go back to that land from which she was exiled. And this has been the great hope of mankind ever since. Every single culture, and I've been to many of them, has some ideal of what that will be like. But only the Christian has a foretaste of it in reality. We are literally brought back into the presence of God and into a right fellowship with him once again because of the work of Jesus Christ. Now we can truly experience a glimpse of what lies ahead. In Christ we are safe, we are secure, and we are heard. Our prayers can ascend to our Heavenly Father and he really hears them. The table of showbread gives us an Old Testament look into this truth. So let's jump right into it and see what the Lord has for us us to see. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again and may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have only two thoughts for you today. The first is the table of showbread. It's verses 23 through 30. In the Holy of Holies, there was one piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. The next room of the tabernacle proceeding out from the Holy of Holies was the holy place. In this room, there were three pieces of furniture, the table of showbread, the golden menorah, and the altar of incense. The first two of these are described here in chapter 25, and the third will be detailed in chapter 30. 
The placement of the altar of incense is debated, but we will worry about that when we get to those verses. For now, in this chapter, we are concerned with the table of showbread and the menorah. The table and the menorah are both depicted on the Arch of Titus. When the Romans plundered Jerusalem, they carried these implements off as war booty. In commemoration of that, they were engraved on this arch to show the magnificence of the conquest. It is an extra-biblical note to the surety that this record dating back to the time of Moses is accurate and that the Jewish presence in Israel is exactly as the Bible proclaims. In other words, one cannot carry away plunder from a Jewish temple if a Jewish temple did not exist. This flies in the face of the many deniers of a Jewish presence in the land in times past. We get the same thing with the Holocaust today. People deny that it happened. We've got the you know, videotaped record of it. Well, we have the engraved record of this conquest on the Arch of Titus there in Rome. Of the two pieces of furniture after the Ark, the table has a special significance and it is to be considered of great importance. For this reason, its details follow immediately after that of the Ark and the Mercy Seat. This table of showbread, like the Ark of the Covenant, pictures Christ and his work and its details begin in verse 23. Verse 23, you shall also make a table of acacia wood. Moses is now instructed to make a table. The word for table is shulchan. This is the first of 71 times that it's going to be used in the Bible. It comes from the verb shalach, which means sent or to spread out. The idea is that a table is spread out for a purpose. This is reflected, for example, in the words of the 23rd Psalm. Ta'aruch lefanai shulchan neged sorerai. Prepare before my face a table in the presence of my enemies. Spread it out, O Lord. The table, like the ark and like all of the tabernacle's furniture, is to be made of shittim, or acacia wood. As I described in the instruction for the building of the ark, acacia is a very slow-growing tree that would be readily available in the area where they were. Its heartwood is dark reddish-brown, and it is beautiful when sanded and polished. It is resistant to decay because it deposits in its heartwood waste substances, which turn into preservatives. This renders it unpalatable to insects. It is also dense and difficult to be penetrated by water and other decaying agents. It is considered incorruptible, picturing the incorruptible nature of Christ's humanity. Verse 23 continues, Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. The table is one half a cubit less than the ark in both length and breadth, and it is the same height. The pulpit commentary says it would then stand about three feet long, one foot six inches wide, and two feet three inches high. It is a humble-sized table. Verse 24, and you shall overlay it with pure gold. Again, like the ark, the wood is to be overlaid with gold. And again, it needs to be noted that zahav, or gold, is the finest of the biblical metals. It indicates purity and holiness, and also royalty, kings, and kingdoms. It is one of the few metals that have a natural color which is not silver. Thus, it is both a metal and a color. And not surprisingly, both are associated with kingship. It is precious because of its rarity, and it is valuable. Throughout history, it has been used as the basis for monetary systems, and it is the standard by which the value of other things is set. It is also considered an incorruptible metal. And the gold here, like the ark, has an adjective to describe it, tahor, or pure. 
It means clean or pure and comes from the verb tahur, which means pure in a physical, chemical, ceremonial, or moral sense. In this, we can see that the gold is to be completely undefiled in any way. As the wood pictures Christ's human nature, the gold pictures his divine nature. Verse 24 continues, and make a molding of gold all around. This molding is similar to the idea of the molding on the ark. There, the molding was for the placement of the mercy seat. On the table, it is for beauty and adornment, as if it were a crown. But it is also for keeping the items of the table securely on the table. The bread which will be placed on this table will remain there, even when the table is moved. The crown is not said to be made of wood, which is overlaid with gold. Rather, it is a solid gold molding. Verse 25, you shall make for it a frame of a handbreadth all around. The word for frame, which is to be made, is a new word in the Bible. It's miskeret. It means borders, as in something which encloses. The word for handbreadth is tofach, and it is actually quite rare in the Bible. This is the first of only five times that it's going to be seen, all in Exodus and in the book of Ezekiel. This rim, then, is to be a structural support for the legs of the table. Views vary on where this frame is. Some depictions have it directly below the top of the table or even level with it. Some have it somewhere down the legs of it. The depiction on the table on the Arch of Titus shows us something halfway down the legs, but that is not a frame. Rather, those were pieces attached to the legs for holding of silver trumpets. The frame itself appears to be right at the top of the table. Verse 25 continues, And you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. This is not the same molding as that of verse 24. The first molding went around the table at its top. This one would be outside of the rim itself, either outside of the first rim or under the top of the table. Looking at various photos of replicas of this table will show you how different artisans view these words, but nobody is actually sure. Verse 26, and you shall make for it four rings of gold. The only real difference between this verse and verse 12 in the construction of the ark is that it says that the rings for the ark were to be cast out of gold. However, it can be assumed that these were also of cast gold. The word for ring is tabaat, and it should be re-explained to you for you to remember. The word means ring, but it comes from another word, taba. That is a verb which means to sink. This then gives the idea of a signet ring, which is sunk into clay or wax in order to make a seal. From this comes the idea of any ring. Verse 26 continues, and put the rings on the four corners that are at its four legs. The ark had feet to which the rings were attached. This table has legs, and so a new word, pe'ah, is used to indicate corners. As each leg is at a corner, the rings are attached there. However, the rings are not at the top or the middle of the legs. Rather, it says, In the four corners that are on the four feet. In other words, the rings were at the very feet of the table. When it was carried, like the ark, it would be completely elevated above those who carried it. No image that I looked at for this particular table accurately depicted this aspect of the table. But this is exactingly depicted on the Arch of Titus. Like the Ark, it does not specify whether these rings are on the short side of the table or the long side of the table. However, the depiction on the Arch of Titus shows that the top is considerably longer than the legs. 
Therefore, they ran along the longer side of the table. Unlike the ark, the table would sit along the side of the holy place in a lengthwise manner. Therefore, even with the poles inserted, they would not interfere with the movement of the priests. Verse 27, the ring shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. These words can be interpreted in several ways. Because we have looked at the depiction of the Arch of Titus, we know what the table looked like. Therefore, these words are not correctly translated as close to the frame. As the poles were at the feet of the table and the frame was at the top, the word means something like opposite the frame or over against the frame. Barnes correctly says the rings were to be placed not upon the framing itself, but at the extremities of the legs answering to each corner of it. The rings were as far from the top of the border as the border was from the top of the feet. This then means that the poles were right at the bottom, and when it was carried, the entire table was carried above the carriers. Verse 28, and you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. The same process for the poles of the ark is seen for the poles of the table. They were to be made of shittim or acacia wood, and they were to be overlaid with gold. If you noticed, the same thing has occurred here as occurred in the description of the ark and the mercy seat. Neither the rings nor the gold of the poles has the adjective pure associated with them. Why? The answer is the same as for that of the ark, which I will re-explain later. Verse 28 continues, that the table may be carried with them. There is a difference between this and the instructions for that of the ark. In the construction of the ark, it specifically said this, the poles shall be in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. For this reason, many scholars come to the conclusion that the poles were removed from this table when it was placed in the tabernacle. This is how Jameson Fawcett Brown states it. They say the staves, however, were taken out of it when stationary in order to not encumber the priests while they engaged in their services at the table. There is no reason to assume this at all and every reason to assume otherwise. First, the fact that the rings were said to be cast on the ark and not for the table doesn't mean that they weren't cast. It logically follows that they were. Secondly, the reason for explicitly stating that the poles were to remain in the ark is because they, in fact, would be considered as encumbering the movement of the priest in the Holy of Holies. Logically, one would think that they would be removed so that the priest wouldn't have to walk around them or between them in order to apply the blood on the mercy seat. But that is what was expected. And third, it has already been shown that the poles were alongside the longer side of the table. Its placement in the holy place means that the staves would in no way encumber the movement of the priests, even if they remained in the table. Considering what they picture, there is every reason to assume that they were not taken from the table, even at rest. Verse 29, you shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and its bowls for pouring. Each of these words, ke'ara or dishes, kasa or pitchers, and menakit or bowls are used for the first time in the Bible. The word kaf or pans is a very common word which simply means hands. However, this is the first time that it's used in this sense. Keara or dishes is used 17 times and only in Exodus and Numbers. It comes from a word which means to tear or to cut out. Thus, it is probably something hollowed out like a shallow bowl. These were probably used for bringing the loaves of the bread to the table. Kaf or pans simply means hand. Thus, it is something like a hand. Some translations say spoon, 
but pan or maybe even cup seems more likely. These would have been used to hold incense, which was placed with the bread. Kasa, or pitchers, comes from an unused root word meaning to be round. And so it is a jug or a pitcher. It is a rare word used only four times in all of the Bible. These would have been used for pouring out drink offerings in conjunction with the changing of the loaves each week. Menachit, or bowls, indicates a sacrificial basin for holding blood. In this case, it would be wine, as if in a drink offering. It is also a rare word. It's only found four times in the Bible. Like the previous word, these would have been used for pouring out drink offerings in conjunction with the changing of the loaves each week. Each of these is noted as for pouring. The word for pouring is nasak, and it means to cover. Thus, when something is poured out, it covers something else. This word has only been used one time so far in Genesis 35, where it said this. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with them, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering, that word, on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. It is obvious that the table of showbread was used not only for the display of bread, but it is where these instruments were placed in conjunction with the rituals which accompanied ministering to the Lord. One bowl is seen atop the table in the depiction on the Arch of Titus. Verse 29 continues, You shall make them of pure gold. Like the gold for the construction of the table, only the finest and purest gold was to be used for these items. They were to be used in the service of the holy place, and each is given as a picture of the Lord, his work, his church to come. Verse 30 finishes our verses today, and you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. From this verse, we derive both the object of the table's use and the name which we ascribe to the table, it being called the table of showbread. However, this name is really a paraphrase of the Hebrew. It was first introduced into English as showbread in William Tyndale's translation of Hebrews 9, verse 2, way back in 1526. What it actually says is lechem panin lefonai tamid, or the bread of the faces before my face continually. Therefore, it is the bread of the faces, or as some call it, the bread of the presence. The word always, or tamid, means perpetually. This comes from an unused root word meaning to stretch as an indefinite extension. And thus one gets the idea of perpetual or that which is continuous. This table then will be used for the placement of 12 loaves of bread, which were to be set continually before the Lord, as is noted in Leviticus 24 with these words. And you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. Two tenths of an epaw shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows. Six in a row on the pure gold table before the Lord, and you shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it, it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. He is our bread of life, the one who sustains us. And through his life, we have been given life too. A constant theme in the Bible, it does discuss from the beginning to the end, yes, through and through. In Christ, we can again draw near to the Lord and in his presence forever remain. 
We are counted as holy, so says his word. Never again will God look upon us with disdain. Justified. We are allowed access once again. Through the blood of Christ, our fellowship is restored. Redeeming grace to Adam's race, the sons of men, for those who have not his calling ignored. Our second thought today is wonderful pictures of Christ. Like the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat, the descriptions in these verses, all, all of them point to the work of Christ. You wonder why I get into all of this minutia. It's because everything is exacting. This is God's word and it is to picture Christ. And so God is very specific. And so we should take the time to look at these things and to search out why they're here. The Ark is a picture of Christ. He's the embodiment of the law. The mercy seat pictures Christ, our place of propitiation and atonement. These are in the most holy place. Outside of that place, we have the first piece of furniture described, the table of the bread of the faces, or the bread of the presence, or the table of showbread. All three names are depicted in the details. The furniture is described as shittim wood covered in gold. The shittim wood is the base material for the table. Its heartwood is dark reddish brown, and it's beautiful when sanded and polished. It pictures Christ's humanity. He, a son of Adam and from the Middle East, and thus bearing the same general color as the wood. Shittim is an incorruptible wood, thus picturing his incorruptible nature. Though a man, he never sinned. The table, like the ark, was not a very large size. In fact, it was humble in that regard. Rather than being some giant, ostentatious thing that people would flock to, it was rather lowly. This pictures Christ in his humbled and lowly human state. He didn't come as a larger-than-life figure, but rather he came to a poor family and led a rather small existence by the world's standards. The table was overlaid with gold, the most precious of the biblical metals. This represents his divinity, his deity, which overlays the wood or his humanity, he being the God-man. The word for overlay, safa, is identical to a word which means to look out, look about, to spy, or to keep watch. Thus, his divine nature is what watches over his subjects, keeping an eye on them. The gold, therefore, not only pictures his divine nature, but it is also a picture of his royal, kingly status. One who has subjects is the ruler of those subjects. And finally, the gold is the standard by which the value of all other things is set. Therefore, he, Jesus Christ, is the standard by which all other things are compared to. The gold of the table is described by the adjective tahor, or pure. This comes from the verb tahur, which means pure in a physical, chemical, ceremonial, or moral sense. In this, we can see that the gold is completely undefiled in any way. Thus, it pictures Christ's perfect purity in all ways, physical, moral, etc. The table was completely covered with gold. This pictures Christ's complete, incorruptible, human, divine nature. He is simultaneously fully man and fully God, and he is completely incorruptible in both respects. The molding of the table is also a picture of his kingly status. Though the word for this molding on the table is never used in the Bible to indicate a king's crown, in picture this is exactly what is seen. The crown was at the top of the table where the bread was, and that's where the bread was set. The symbolism of that I'll get to when we get to the bread. After the crown molding, the frame is next described. It is said to be a handbreadth thick all around. This word handbreadth or tofach comes from another word used only twice in the Bible. Once in Isaiah 48:13, where the Lord is said to have stretched out the heavens by his right hand. 
Once again, in Lamentations, where it speaks of children who are held by another, as if dandled in their hands. Thus, the idea of the handbreadth shows the ability to accomplish a feat. In this case, it is sufficient to support the table of the bread of the faces. This pictures the Lord's ability to establish and sustain his people through his work. This is seen, for example, in Isaiah 59 with these words. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with the zeal as a cloak. In the Bible, Christ is said to wear many crowns. The molding for that frame reflects another of his many kingly roles, that of establishing and sustaining. After this, the four rings are mentioned. These have the exact same symbolism as the Ark of the Covenant. The number four in the Bible always speaks of the physical creation. The four corners of the earth are represented by the four rings. The fourfold division of mankind, the family, tongues, countries, and nations are represented by the four rings. And thus the four rings are represented by the message of the four gospels going out to all places. The ring is the symbol of authority as a signet. Just as a signet sinks into wax as a sign of authority and a testimony of the king's rule, the four gospels sink into the hearts of man and are a testimony and authority of the rule of Christ the king. These rings are attached in the four corners that are on the four feet. These four feet then are the four gospels which are taken to the ends of the earth or the four corners of the earth. They are the written record of the work of Christ from which the message of him is derived. The placement of the rings at the feet of the table thus elevates the table above those who carry it. It is a picture of exalting the work of Christ above all else. As our feet move, carrying the gospel, Christ is elevated to his proper position as well. In other words, we should all be out there evangelizing and telling people about the work of Christ. The poles of the table, or bad, are that on which the table rests as it's being carried. The number two in the Bible indicates that there is a difference in things. They contrast, and yet they confirm. There is the heavens and the earth. They contrast, and yet they confirm the extent of creation. There is man, and there is woman. They contrast, and yet they confirm the totality of humanity. The word bad means alone. There are two poles which together support the one table. The table pictures Christ, and thus they are what makes Christ mobile to the world as the word is carried out. They are the two testaments of the Bible, each of these carrying him. They contrast the law and grace, but each supports the whole and confirms the message of him. And each is made of the same materials, shittim wood and gold. Together they proclaim the dual nature of the coming Messiah and the Messiah who is come. He is the God-man. As the four Gospels are the transition from the old to the new, it is the four rings attached to the four feet with, to which the two Testaments are affixed. You can see Testament here, Testament here, and the Gospels are right in the middle. It's a picture of the Bible that's being made there. As Christ is the king, the carrying of the table on the poles pictures the palanquin which a king would have been carried around on. He is the king depicted in those four Gospels which are tied to the two Testaments of the Bible. 
as the table can only be carried by two poles, not just one, it teaches us that should we remove either or both testaments of the Bible, we would not have a proper presentation of who Christ is. Without one or the other, we would have a faulty view of him. And without either, we'd have no knowledge of him at all. The reason why the adjective tahor, or pure, is not used to describe this gold is because the Gospels and the two Testaments have been handled by man. They have our taint in them, even if they are the inspired word of God. How often have I highlighted to you the errors in the King James Version, each time I find one, or the New King James Version, or in the many other translations that we refer to? Though the word of God is pure, man's hands and his fallible interpretations have been used in the process of sharing it. The lacking adjective is no mistake. Instead, it is another picture for us to understand. After this, the four items for the service of the table were mentioned, the dishes, pans, pitchers, and bowls. These were to be used for the bread, incense, and wine, which accompanied the rituals surrounding the weekly bread offering. Although these are going to be described later and their symbolism will be fully addressed at that time, a quick look at them now will help us see the purpose of this table. It and the provisions are all types of Christ. The bread pictures Christ explicitly in the Bible. First, he was born where? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. In Hebrew, Beit Lachem, or the house of bread. It was given as an initial clue that from the house of bread would come the true bread of life. Throughout his ministry, he used bread in both picture and word to demonstrate fundamental truths about himself, the word of God, and our need for both. Several times in John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, such as in this passage right here. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. This now explains why the poles run along the longer side of the table rather than the shorter side. It is because this table, unlike the ark, is being carried as a funeral bier. Christ died as our bread of life. Only in his death can we have this life. This is why when we take the Lord's Supper, it says we proclaim his death until he comes. Every detail is perfectly ordered and arranged. The fact that there are 12 loaves shows the totality of his church. Bollinger defines the number 12 as a perfect number, which signifies perfection of government or of governmental perfection. It is found as a multiple in all that it has to do with rule. And this is exactly what the bread signifies. The bread of the faces pictures those who are all the subjects of their king. As we are in Christ, we are, as Paul notes in the New Testament, a part of the same lump of bread as that of the first fruits, meaning Christ. Here's one such verse from 1 Corinthians 15. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. The bread had no yeast in it, picturing his sinless perfection. As we are in him, we too are now deemed sinless. This bread was to be placed in two rows, six per row. These then show that they are of the same lump, and yet they differ. Two implies a difference. 
The number six is the number of man. Two sets of loaves show two types of men. Therefore, it is a picture of both Jew and Gentile being one in Christ. We are now in Christ and share his sinless state before God. In other words, these two rows of bread carry the same general significance as the two cherubim that were on the mercy seat. The frankincense placed on the bread pictures Christ's work. He was presented with frankincense at his birth, picturing what was to come in his ministry. At his death, his body was wrapped in spices according to the Jewish customs. This would have had frankincense included in it. His death is remembered at the presenting of the loaves. It is his death that makes us acceptable once again to God. The changing of the loaves each week on the Sabbath was a sign that we are always being renewed in Christ. Even though we currently live in fallen bodies, we are now, even right now, positionally seated with Christ in the heavenly places. But more importantly, it is a picture of our rest and our being rested in him, our true Sabbath rest. This is why we don't observe a Sabbath day any longer. He is our rest and he is our place of rest. This is confirmed by those most memorable words of Hebrews 4, verse 3. For we who have believed do enter that rest. Our status in Christ and our eternal spiritual renewal is in him. It is pictured by the changing of the loaves. Paul speaks of our renewal in Christ several times in the New Testament, including this passage from 2 Corinthians. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. As this bread is before the face of the Lord, it is also called the bread of the presence. In other words, in the bread, there is a picture of the people. But also in the location of the bread, there is a picture of being in the presence of the Lord. It pictures the communion between us and the Lord because we are in Christ. The bread being on the table pictures our being supported by Christ. He is the underpinning of our position. Without him, the God-man, there would be no place for us before the Lord. But because of him, we rest safely there in his presence. The wine would have been poured out at the time of the changing of the loaves, picturing the pouring out of Christ's blood for his people. The incense being sprinkled on the loaves pictures our death with Christ. It symbolizes the access that we have to God's throne of grace in our time of need. This was made possible by his death. This again is seen in the New Testament, such as this verse from Colossians 3. If then you were raised with Christ... Seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with God in Christ. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Man, that's got my hair standing up. Until now, I have left off the symbolism of the crown molding, which is at the top of the table, simply because of what it pictures. It is obviously a picture of his kingly role, but because it is at the top of the table, it thus surrounds the loaves of bread, which picture those who are in Christ. Therefore, this crown molding is a picture of eternal salvation of those who have called on him. He surrounds and encompasses them, and therefore it pictures Christ our king in his role as the one who justifies his people before God. 
The description of this second piece of furniture follows naturally after that of the Ark of the Covenant. One cannot be in Christ until the mission of Christ was fulfilled. Thus the Ark was detailed first, his human divine nature fulfilling the law and thus embodying the tablets of the law. Next, the mercy seat was detailed because it was his sacrifice which was in fulfillment of scripture. Once that was accomplished, he began his next role, that of being our bread from heaven. We can now participate in his life by receiving his work. From that, we become a part of the lump of bread, his body. Our lives are now literally, and I mean, if you've called on Jesus Christ, your life is now literally in the presence of God. And our prayers, pictured by that frankincense, are now acceptable to God. From this marvelous aspect of his work, We're going to move on next week to that pictured by the menorah, the golden lampstand, which will complete this particular chapter. We're going to hope for wonderful things in that passage as well, and I assure you there are. What we should learn from the repetition of these many same themes is the construction of the ark is that we are being asked to remember the truths that they reveal. We are to remember what the acacia wood represents. We are to remember what the gold represents. And we are to think on why some gold has the adjective tahor or pure attached to it and why some gold doesn't have that adjective attached to it. On and on, repetition is used in these pieces of furniture to show us things that we are to remember. And above all, we are asked to direct our attention to Christ. It is he who is the subject of every picture that we see. If we can remember this, then our continued studies throughout the rest of the Bible will all make complete sense. And as God wants us to see Christ, it is an indication that he wants us to receive Christ. In so doing, we will be pleasing to him once again. Without the Son, no man can be pleasing to the Father. And so be sure to call out to him for forgiveness of your sins. And then come forward and share in the Lord's table a memorial of the giving of the true bread of life. If you've never asked Jesus Christ to be your savior, you know, God is showing us these things for a reason. All of this detail and, you know, you read these passages and you think, oh, I just can't stand anymore reading. It's just, it's meticulous and all these details. And why did God do this? It's because he wants us to see the intricacy of what he has done in human history. You think this is complicated? Try theology. Try arguing with people that disagree on what the toe on the beast of the, you know, over there means. It's a complicated book. Some people think that the Nephilim are angels. Some people think they're the sons of men. Which is true and why? Why do we argue these things? It's because people don't sit down and go through the details. But in the details, Christ is found and the plan of redemption for mankind. And all of this is important to God and so it should be important to us. And it points to the God-man. So if you haven't received Jesus Christ as your Savior and you're sitting here listening to this, why not? God is trying to wake you up to the fact that there is no other path to him. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. All pictured in these things. How do we come to the Father? He fulfilled the law on our behalf. Ark of the Covenant. Tablets are inside. He embodies that law. Mercy seat on top. He gave his life for our sins. The blood was poured out for us. And then what happens? We receive him, our bread of life. We take it in and we say, I want what Christ did for me. I want to be reconciled to my heavenly father, pictured by this this table that we're looking at today. And if you do that on the top of the table is this little thing that goes around it, eternal security. It's a fence for us that he will never lose us. 
He will never lose his grasp on us. But this is what Christ did. But you cannot be a part of what God is doing in the world unless you call in Christ as your Savior. Please do that today. Please just say, I want to be reconciled to my Father through Christ. I'm tired of working my way to heaven. Man, you'll be working a long time and you'll never get there. It's an infinite gap between us and him. But Christ is God and Christ is man. And so he can bridge that infinite gap back to his heavenly Father. Do it today. Our closing verse comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's verses 16 and 17. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For though we, many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Christ the bread, two sets of loaves, Jew and Gentile, brought together in him. Wonderful stuff. Next week, Exodus 25, it's verses 31 through 40. Something surrounded by a wonderful aura. It's entitled the menorah. That'll be our 70th Exodus sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Our poem today is called The Bread of the Presence. For those of you who have never been to one of these sermons before, every time I do a sermon, I take the verses out of the New King James Version and I make them into a poem form. So if you follow along with the New King James Version, you know exactly where you are in the poem. Okay, and I've done a whole poem on the book of Genesis and now we're doing one on the book of Exodus. 70 poems so far. Let's see. The Bread of the Presence. You shall also make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall its be its length. That will be just right. A cubit its width, this is understood, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall it with pure gold overlay and make a molding of gold all around, just as I say. You shall make for it a frame of a handbreadth all around, and you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. Its appearance will astound. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and put the rings on the four corners that are at its four legs. Do this as I have told. The ring shall be close to the frame. This is where, as holders for the poles, the table to bear. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, that the table may be carried with them, as is understood. You shall make, as you are now told, its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the show bread on the table always before me, as to you I have said. A marvelous table in its purpose and design, a table for bread to be used in the presence of the Lord. And what it pictures is wonderfully sublime. Such beautiful pictures of Christ are found in this word. Lord God, how good it is to know that we can now rest in your presence because of the work of Jesus. It was he who went to the cross completing the test and his work now restores access to you for us. We thank you and praise you for this wondrous glory which you have revealed to us through the gospel story. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this wonderful, wonderful picture of Christ, our bread of life. Every detail of it, which seems so tedious when we don't understand what's being pictured, but if we just remind ourselves, Christ, Christ, you want us to see your son. You stepped out of eternity and you entered the realm of humanity in order to redeem us to yourself. Oh, what marvelous pictures there are. Thank you for these. Thank you for opening our eyes to them. Help us to pursue your, pursue, pursue your word all our days and to just follow you where you lead. 
never straying from your path for us. Lord, we thank you. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you. And we do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We get the uh, instruction for the Lord's table directly from the Bible itself. Okay, it's from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And today we had um, some talks about um, cons, cons, uh, transubstantiation, yeah. not con, which is yeah. uh, Luther. But uh, it's a good time for us to today, because I do this once or twice a year, and because you brought it up, and I think you mentioned something about it as well, transubstantiation, is to go through what we believe and why. And this will only take a couple minutes. There are four predominant views. There are many lesser views, but there are four prominent views on what this represents. If you are hold to Roman Catholic teaching, which is completely wrong, completely, and there's a reason for it. It's a biased teaching. It's uh, Let me tell you, it's got them in bondage. But they say that this literally becomes the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. It is a reenactment of a bloody sacrifice. We are re-crucifying Christ all over again through this, uh, what they perceive is the Mass. Okay, When you take this, it literally becomes his body and his blood in uh, your mouth. Even though it still tastes like bread and wine, the whole thing is goofy. You know, And if that's true, then I'm guilty because every week I take whatever's left and that's my lunch. And I, I eat it on the way home. And then when I get done, there's all this stuff in the bottom of it. And I put it out the door and I go... And I, so I'm, I'm really doing something bad if that's true. So it's not true. Okay, It is not the body. It is not transubstantiation, meaning transforming from Christ into your mouth his body. The second is the Luther, uh, Lutheran view, which is consubstantiation. And I think so that he wouldn't get branded as a heretic, he kind of made this funny thing so that he wouldn't go too far away from what the, the Catholics said. But consubstantiation, think of fire in metal. This gets really hot and Christ is in there. It's like fire in metal. So he is there in the elements. It's just not his literal body, literal body and blood. It's kind of confused, and but that's, fire in metal is probably the best way of explaining that. The third view, prominent view, is Calvinism uh, teaches that he is spiritually present with us when we take these elements. Okay, Now, that causes a couple problems. This is not well thought out. Uh, Jesus you know, tells us that if we want to pray to our Heavenly Father, go lock ourselves in a closet and we can do it. And he's obviously there if he's hearing our prayer. So Christ is everywhere. He's not more somewhere at any one time. He just responds differently. He's everywhere. His Holy Spirit is everywhere at all times. So saying that he is spiritually present when we take these elements means that he's not spiritually present any other time. That's just wrong. The fourth view is the correct view. It's the Swingali view, or it's predominantly Baptists. And they say that Christ is uh, symbolically present in this body and bread. Okay? How do we know that's true? How do, where do we get our doctrine from? Do we get it from some guy that makes stuff up in the Vatican? No, we get it from this book right here. And what did Jesus do on the night when he was betrayed? Just before he held these things in his hand and he said, this is my body and this is my blood. Well, obviously it wasn't his body and it wasn't his blood. He was making a spiritual application about these things. So we are symbolically representing his body in his blood. Does everybody understand? That's a very brief explanation off the top of my head. So, But uh, uh, this is the reason why we come here, is to remember what Christ did. We remember his death until he comes, and it is only a spiritual picture of that. It's not actually those other three things. Anyway, from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes these words. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, 
that on that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and he would have given thanks over it. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, brought forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well, saying, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Olam, Borei Peri Hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body 
in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. should say this now because I, I didn't say it and we've got people that are visiting that haven't been here before. There's uh, cheesecake and there's uh, fruit and uh, there's one other cake. I can't remember what I got this morning. But anyway, there's food back there in the back. Unless you have to go, don't rush away. Spend some time, say hi to people and have a piece of cake and uh, uh, I should have bought an extra one. We've got several more people than normal sweet here today. So. It's sweet fellowship. That's right. So please, please keep that in mind. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. 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 Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this chance to participate in the table pictured so long ago, out in the wilderness, with a group of people that you chose to show us hints of yourself and what you would do for us in human history. And that law that stands opposed to us, set aside through the work that he accomplished for us. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you for that, that we're free to worship you in spirit and in truth, and that we have an eternal hope, which is guaranteed not someday in the future, but right now because of what he did. Thank you for that. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.